Love is an action, not a reaction, not just a feeling. It's the real deal, the real deal, real deal. Chosen devotion, spirit emotion, more than a word. It's the Well, hello, friends. As you have already noticed, today is a very, very special day here at Keystone. Our construction season has come to an end. It is grand opening and just wanted to celebrate all of you who partnered with us to make this happen. We've created more room for friends and we cannot wait to see what God does in this new space. And, and, and uh, also, uh, I'm thrilled if you're here and you're visiting. I'm actually honored and thrilled you're here and you're visiting. Today you get to take a peek behind the scenes at Keystone, see kind of what drives us as an organization, maybe what makes us a little different than other churches that you may have experienced. So if you're here, I am thrilled you're with us. Uh, you should know right from the gate, we have been and will continue to be a church on a mission to help people find and follow Jesus. Uh, Keystone was started 25 years ago by a group of Jesus followers who shared a dream. They knew that 25 years ago, this is going to be a stretch for you to imagine, 25 years ago Grand Rapids did not need another church. Can you believe it, right? Uh, people who don't go to church call us Jerusalem, like Jerusalem. I'm still looking for the shirt, but anyway, that's the deal. Uh, they knew though that Grand Rapids didn't need another church. Grand Rapids needed a different sort of church. And here's why. They had friends who were interested in exploring a relationship with God that just didn't fit in the churches that were currently existing. They were interested in Jesus and what he had to say. They maybe were even interested in coming to a spot where they could find him and follow him. But they just didn't fit the mold of church people at least 25 years ago. And of course, 25 years ago, church people, you're talking, there you go, the church lady, right? So this group of friends got together and they said, let's get rid of all the stuff that can get in the way of the message of Jesus and let's draft a different sort of strategy for how church might be done. They said, let's get rid of the pews because after hundreds of years of experiments, they thought they're not comfortable, right? And they knew this because if you go to a church with pews now, people bring these memory foam cushions to sit on like you're going to a football game. It's just a little awkward. So we got rid of the pews. And they said, let's make the sermons shorter because people have a shorter attention span and no one's ever walked out of a talk and went, man, that was just too short, that sermon. Unbelievable. So we thought we'll shorten that up. Uh, then they said, let's rethink Sunday school, our kids' environments, and, and even what we call, what we do with the kids. Because somebody a long time ago thought the best way to market something to elementary kids on the weekend was to call it school. And they thought that may not be the best idea, so maybe we'll rebrand that. And then they thought about sort of the worship space. They said, what if we created a worship space that was more like an auditorium or a concert venue because people like those spaces and it may be a place where we can build a, a bridge of, of understanding. And then we talked about ties and high heels. We said, you know, for a long time they've been sort of mandatory in church. And if you're here and you're in a tie, rock it. Great for you, right? But as far as it being um, something we all have to do, they said, let's get rid of that. Let's get rid of the high heel obligation. And then finally they said, well, let's serve popcorn. Because Jesus loved popcorn. 
No, Jesus never had popcorn. But, but people like popcorn, especially if you have the ranch shaker on top. Come on now, right? I mean, that's a good day right there. So that was sort of what they thought. And they thought, Kiso was launched by a group of people who loved Jesus and who believed Jesus loved their non-churchy, non-compliant neighbors. Even the neighbors who'd been rejected by the church. Even the neighbors who carried questions that weren't welcomed in church. Even those people that thought they had gone too far and done too much ever to be a part of a church. Keystone's founders basically were driven by a pretty amazing reality. And you see it when you read those accounts of Jesus' life. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It goes like this. I'll put it up on the screen. Jesus loved people in the midst of their mess. And so should his church. Jesus loved people in the midst of their mess, and so should his church. So they set out to create a different sort of church, a church that was different by design, a church that would remove all the obstacles in coming to faith except the cross of Jesus Christ. And I know all of this because I was a part of some of those early conversations. Keystone intersected with my story four months after I graduated from the University of Michigan. We don't have time today, but man, that football team is looking up. I'm just telling you right now. But that's all I'm going to say about that. All right. Now, but we have a tough schedule. Now I'm back to my script. Okay. So I had grown up in church, but never had any intention of ever working for one. I was a Jesus follower, and so I planned to be a part of church for the rest of my life. But there were things about church that I thought I, I really would never want to make my job to have that happen. I didn't like church coffee. I did not care for church basement smell. Are you familiar with this? And I did not like potlucks, and I still struggle with potlucks. So I thought, I'm not ever going to be like a church employee. That's crazy. But then one fateful day in early September of 1996, I met two guys who could only be described as smooth operators. I brought a picture from that era. Check out these guys right here. All right. Friends, what you see here is, is Randy Wasink with hair. Can you believe it? And then the other guy, um, you know, some of you thought, why was Randy planting a church with Nicolas Cage? That's what you were thinking, right? But that's actually our founding pastor, Gene Young. And, and so they got together along with some other families and friends, and I met these guys. And I'll never forget the first day I met Gene. I was selling real estate for about three months while I waited for medical school to start with my parents, and our office moved into the same building Keystone had offices. And so Gene saw our cars pull up and went down and helped me carry boxes of stuff into our new offices. And he introduced himself as this pastor who was planting a different sort of church in Grand Rapids. And, and, and I was fascinated enough that he invited me out to lunch. And because he then and now was a classy fellow, we went to Boston Market. I'm just saying, right? And he explained why he was planting a church in a town that didn't need another church. And I was fascinated. And so that next Sunday, I attended. And then I began volunteering. And then eventually, I was volunteering so much that, that Gene said, well, hey, we'd love to offer you a job. And I said, well, you know, that, that would be awesome. I mean, what, what, you know, what, what can you do for me? And he said, well, we're thinking $400 a month full-time. And the benefit package is something we could around here call eternal rewards, okay? <laughs> we're still waiting on the eternal rewards. Not sure how that works. But safe to say, I never imagined 25 years later, I would be standing here before you. Uh, safe to say, this is a very special place for me, and it's a special place for so many of you. I mean, over the years, hundreds of friends have re-engaged their faith at Keystone. We've connected or reconnected with God and with each other in meaningful ways. And here's the coolest thing for me on a day like today. We're just getting started. 
So what I want to do with just the brief time that remains today is, is talk about something that may surprise you, especially if you're new around here and have a few questions. Uh, because I get these questions from time to time if people are feeling, you know, spunky. They, they say something like this. Can church really be like this? I mean, are we, aren't we breaking like all the rules? It, it, it kind of seems too good to be true. I had a guy recently say to me, my kids want to go to church. And he said, that was not my story, right? And then he said this, he goes, man, I actually want to go to church. And, and then a friend said to me, you know, does Keystone count as a real church? Because it's, it's so different. And one guy said to me, you know, I grew up in a church and every time we went, I felt like I was attending a funeral and I go to Keystone and it feels like a celebration. And if you've ever had those thoughts, it may surprise you to learn that in launching something new, Keystone was actually rediscovering something really old. And what I want to do today is explain what I mean with two observations that explain the foundation, the core of what Jesus had in mind for his church. Because from the beginning, it was supposed to be simple and it was supposed to be irresistible. Jesus intended his church to be a community built around good news, and we'll unpack that in a moment, and an incredibly simple strategy as to how he wanted his followers to live in the world. So my first observation has to do with the good news. My second has to do with the simple strategy. So the good news goes like this. I'll put it up on the screen. Jesus initiated a new covenant, a new arrangement, a new testament between people and God. And here's kind of what that means. Prior to Jesus, both the Jewish people, of which Jesus was one, and people from all over the world would go to a priest who would do business with God or with the gods for them. They would have this sense that they had done something, did a broken relationship with whoever was in charge. And so they would bring a lamb or a ram or a goat to an altar where they would meet with a priest. And the priest would slaughter the animal on the altar as a sacrifice. And the promise was that if you did this, the gods or the god, whoever was in charge, would forgive your sins. At least you hoped they would forgive your sins. And, and that had been the story for over a thousand years in the nation of Israel. It had been that way for thousands of years in religions all over the ancient world. But from the very beginning of Jesus' teaching, there were hints that something new was afoot, that things were changing. See, around 27 AD, a man came, came along called John the Baptist. And he wasn't called John the Baptist to distinguish him from his buddy, John the Presbyterian which is a terrible pastor joke, and it never works. Oh, anyway, okay. John was called John the Baptizer because he literally immersed people in water who wanted a fresh start in their relationship to God. And he had set up base about 40 miles south of Jerusalem along the Jordan River, and people would take that trip, hundreds of people in Jesus' day would take that trip in order to be baptized by John. And, and so one day, John is sort of working through the line of the people who've come, and he stops, and he points, and he says something that made no sense to anybody there that day. A Jesus follower named John recorded it for us. It says, the next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And in this context, John's words would have been startling, apart from the fact that Jesus was not a sheep. Everybody's like looking around, and what? it's just a guy standing there. And beyond that, though, how could one lamb take away all sin? It was a mystery for a few years. You see, from that moment forward, Jesus lived a very public life. He called disciples, and he taught, and he traveled, and he put the power of God on display. He was captivating he confronted the corrupt religious establishment of his day. 
but he also left a trail of hints that something was going on with him that was unprecedented and that there was something to what John had said. Jesus wasn't just a great teacher. He wasn't just a great prophet. There was a mission for his life that was much, much bigger than all of that. He kept saying to his first followers he would be arrested and crucified, and they thought, no way. You're a rock star. You're always surrounded by people. You've healed the blind. You've opened the ears of the deaf, the lame dance. It's like heaven breaks out wherever you go. You even called a guy back from the dead. You're untouchable. And then three years after John's proclamation, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, Jesus had a last supper with his followers. Yes, that last supper. After which he said something that would have shocked them. Matthew, who was there, records it for us. He says, after the supper, he took the cup. So there was a cup of wine on the table. It was a specific meal they were enjoying together. He took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. This cup is the new arrangement between people and God in my blood, which is poured out for you. This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is poured out for you. And they would have had a few questions. Jesus' first followers were Jewish, and they had already been in a covenant with God, as I mentioned, for like a thousand years. And it involved them bringing animals to priests to be slaughtered when they did something to break relationship with God. The blood of the animals paid the debt of their sin. That was how it had been. So Jesus, what do you mean, a new covenant in your blood? And how can you establish a new covenant in your blood when you're not bleeding? But then less than a day later, they realized exactly what Jesus meant. He was put on trial, and he was convicted and beaten and hung on a cross to die. And when you read those accounts, there's a detail that seems irrelevant until you consider what John said. Because typically when Rome would crucify someone, and Rome crucified a lot of people in the first century, they would hang them on a cross, they would suffer, and then when Rome got sick of watching you suffer, they'd break your legs and you'd suffocate. That's how most people died when they were crucified. But in the case of Jesus, when they came to break his legs, he was already dead because of the beating that he had sustained. In other words, Jesus bled to death, just like a lamb on the altar. And so the rest of the New Testament sort of celebrates this new covenant that Jesus inaugurated through his death. The author of a New Testament letter called Hebrews, which was actually written to Jewish people who said yes to the sacrifice of Jesus. He writes this, and he's just celebrating he says, we have been made holy. In other words, we are right with God. You say, how? Through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. His efforts on our behalf, not our efforts to try to earn something. That's not how the new covenant works. Through his death on the cross, Jesus became the way to peace with God. And this has all sorts of implications for each of us personally. His sacrifice on your behalf can restore relationship between you and God. You don't have to try and be good enough. You don't have to try to do enough good to overcome the bad. You don't have to spill the blood of an animal when you sin. You weren't thinking about that anyway. You simply trust that what Jesus accomplished on the cross was for you, and you're restored to right relationship with God. This was the message that went out from the city of Jerusalem all around the Mediterranean Rim, and eventually around the world. And when people heard this message, they said, this is good news. It's where we get the word gospel. It literally means good news. That we can know where we stand with God by placing our trust in Jesus. 
In other words, and this next statement is where this really connects with a whole bunch of us in our stories and what Jesus had in mind for his church. In other words, insecurity about where we stand with God was never intended to be part of the church of Jesus. He doesn't ever want you to wonder if you've gone too far and done too much because if you've said yes to Jesus, you stand before God holy. And some of you are thinking right now, that wasn't exactly the vibe I got in the church where I grew up. Uh, guilt was leveraged a lot, and shame was leveraged a lot, and, and they were trying to get us to do things, and there was this sort of ethos in the air that God might not be okay with us anymore, and if that's you, you need to hear this. That's one of the reasons why Keystone was started. Because the founding, founding fathers and mothers of Keystone, they came to this place where they said, we have got to clear away all of the stuff that keeps people from understanding the beautiful, disruptive, life-changing message of what Jesus came to do. That's the good news. That's observation number one. Observation number two has to do with Jesus' strategy for his followers. Okay, so I've said yes to Jesus. I stand holy before God. Now what, Jesus? What do you want me to do? What about the rules of religion, Jesus? Because if you spend any time around church, you know there's often a lot of rules, and I wonder what Jesus had in mind. And here's the thing. When you go back to those first accounts of his life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you say, Jesus, what about the rules? You see something that was alarmingly different about Jesus. Because his rules for his followers were way more simple than what had come before. You say, well, what had come before? Well, in the Jewish tradition, there were 613 Old Testament commands, the to-dos and the to-don'ts. And so Jesus enters that sort of system with well, something brand new, it goes like this. Instead of a bunch of rules, Jesus instituted a new movement-defining ethic for his followers. And he knew that if his followers got this one thing right, everything else would fall into place. You say, well, where do you see that? Back to the Last Supper. Jesus gives this new command to his followers that is supposed to become the defining ethic of his followers. And it, and it goes like this. Jesus says, a new command I give you. Love one another. But he's not done yet. He says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Some of you are thinking, oh yeah, the, the love one another or love other people like you want to be loved. That's like the golden rule. I think Jesus elevates it a, a click. This is like the platinum rule, right? I want you to love other people like I have loved you. Jesus, what did you do to demonstrate your love for us? Shortly after this meal, they would know it fully because Jesus surrendered himself to death for the benefit of his followers. And then he says to his followers, would you follow me, would you lay down your life out of love for other people? And if you live your life in a rhythm where love is the filter through which you make all decisions, it's amazing. You don't really need the other rules. And Jesus knows it. And so it's so clarifying. And it gets around all the loopholes that we create in rules to try to avoid breaking the law, but avoid really following the heart of the rule. Jesus says, I want you to just, I want you just to love as I have loved you. I want you to love one another. That was the message. You say, well, did they, did they get it right? I mean, at least out of the gate, did they get it right? They really did. And we know this because we have letters written to early Christians by, by a man named Paul who had been a Jewish religious professional who came face to face with the resurrected Jesus and it changed his life and it changed his framework. And he understood that this was to be the center of the Jesus movement, this, this defining ethic of love. So he writes a letter to Christians living in a Roman province called Galatia, and he says this, puts it real simple. He says, the only thing that counts, the you want rules? The only thing that counts, Paul's like, I'm a master of the rules. That was my deal. 
right? The only thing that counts is faith in Jesus expressing itself through love. Another point Jesus says, man, if you love, all of the other commands just take care of themselves, right? All, he says, all the law and the prophets hang on the commands to love God, and you demonstrate the love of God by loving other people. It's clarifying, it's convicting, it's disruptive, it's helpful, but it's at the heart of what Jesus wants for his followers, and it's at the heart of Keystone's mission to help people find and follow Jesus. It's at the heart of what we've tried to embody as an organization for 25 years. Because, friends, 25 years ago, Keystone was launched as something new in our community. But in launching something new, really, it was rediscovering something very old. And we know we're far from perfect, right? But we do seek to create a gathering that reflects the message and strategy Jesus had in mind when he unleashed his church on the world. That is the path that has led us to here and now. And that is the path that we get to walk as we move forward. Would you stand? Heavenly Father, um, we come before you this morning just to say thank you. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for coming among us as one of us to demonstrate the depths of your love, to burn off the fog of religion and to hand us something that is so simple and so beautiful. So we thank you for the blood of the lamb that takes away sin. We thank you for giving us a mission that's portable and memorable and powerful. I pray that we would be people of faith in this community who live love and live it loudly so that people might come to know you as their heavenly father. And so I ask that as we move forward as an organization, um, you would continue to put your hand on us and bless us. There are people all over our community who need to know the truth, who need to see your love in flesh. And, and so I pray that you use us in that way. Uh, but for today, in this moment, we just say thank you for the journey so far. Thank you for those who have gone before us. Uh, may we be inspired by their sacrifice. May we most of all be inspired by the sacrifice of your son. It is in the matchless name of Jesus, the name of, above all names that we pray. Everyone said, Amen. Now, friends, before I dismiss you, you know, we have a little something going out in the parking lot. You know what I'm talking about? There are grills. There are bouncy houses. So if you have kids, you're staying anyway. Don't even try to leave. Okay? But go in peace. Let's celebrate together. And we'll see you back here next week for a new series. Yes.